You found the Sassy Thoughts Podcast, the place for anyone who works at a tech company from startup to scale up. Where we help you get ahead of the trends that affect your work and life so you can make better decisions about how to spend your time and money. And today we've some fun lined up for you. We've got new stalker tech. You can use it to find out whether your significant other really is going to acro yoga or not. We've got VR for cops and getting flipped off by a robot at a restaurant. But first... Let's talk about the creepy stuff. Let's talk about mesh networks by Apple and Amazon. Uh, oh, yeah. Sam, you heard about this stuff? Of course. I think it was big news early on when Apple was teasing uh, something to about AirTags because, of course, prior to AirTags, there was Tile. Tile had been around right. for years. Yep. I don't know what's going on with Tile now. I imagine they're not doing as well. I but... lost my Tile. I had a Tile. I can't find it. <laughs> <laughs> Ironic. Well, AirTags is a little bit different because it's using this you know, mesh network technology, which is similar to what Amazon has been pushing as well. And they're a little bit different. Basically, what we're expecting now is that there's going to be a kind of a blanket of Bluetooth all around us. Isn't that right? Yeah, that freaks me the heck out. So it makes me feel like 1984, the movie on steroids. Like, if, if so, for those folks who don't know anything about mesh works, just imagine a mesh. Think of a grid made up of all these devices that are talking to each other quietly that you don't know about. And like, if, I don't know, ten years ago, probably had nothing to worry about because the proliferation of these devices wasn't so great. Main uh, main example of Bluetooth would have been you know headsets and um, cell phones. But today, if you walk down your street in suburbia, at least you've got these Ring cameras uh, cameras on your door. So you know Ring is owned by by Amazon. Uh, um, you've got basically anything with uh, as any speaker, Bluetooth. You know, there's there's hundreds of thousands of these things everywhere. So the chances are that your device in your pocket can speak to something are pretty pretty high. And um, it feels to me like we're moving to a place where government grade surveillance tech is being available to the masses. I mean, let's talk about AirTags for a second, Sam. You you you've, you've seen these things. Can we explain to folks what the hell an AirTag is? Yeah, so it's just like a little circular tag. It's about the size of a quarter, I think, maybe a little smaller. And the idea is you can stick them on stuff. You can maybe have it on a keychain, and it uses this uh, like low energy Bluetooth network so that you can find where it is. Right? You can look at the app on your phone. You can see where you lost your keys, or you know where you uh, where you're. Certainly, you've always had like the ability to see where your phone is, right? With Find My iPhone, so it's kind of like Find My iPhone, but extended to up to I believe in your Apple ID, you can have up to fifteen or sixteen of these at a time. And yeah, uh, yeah if you lose something, there's other little features and functionality, but that's the core of it. Yeah. So what what I don't like about this thing is that it doesn't rely on the mobile network, right? It's Bluetooth. But here's where it gets really effective: is that it will speak to any iPhone that it's near, right? Through through this, this type of network that's not reliant on mobile. And then of course, the cell phone itself is connected uh, to the mobile data network and they can send uh, signals back over the internet. So think about this, Sam. Sam, I don't believe you're going to acro yoga today. So what do I do? You said it's about the size of a quarter, right? So I just drop that tag inside your acro yoga bag with your uh, Lululemon Lycra that I know you like to wear so much. And now... I can basically track you anywhere, just like the FBI might be able to do. I mean, is that creepy to you? It's creepy to me. It's a little creepy. I mean, I remember uh, the even it's creepy when law enforcement does it as well. I mean, I remember uh, over and over again, news stories kept breaking in, in years uh, ago around devices like I believe it was called a Stingray. 
where in cities like New York, if you were walking around, your phone would start to use one of these basically fake uh, wireless towers yeah. that were set up purely for surveillance purposes. You didn't have, they didn't have a warrant on you, of course, right? They had some sort of general permission from some authority to be able to basically scan every single passing phone that walked by. And you have unique identifying information associated with your phone. And so by just walking around a city and hitting two or three of these Stingray devices, they pretty much could find out exactly who you are by cross-referencing that with other data from people like AT&T. And, uh, and so this just has become normalized. And so, yeah, on the one hand, I have always found it creepy, but on the other hand, it's kind of inevitable, you know, like, what are we really going to do about it? Uh, yeah, I see. I'm less worried about the authorities tracking me and, and quite the Stingray. Yes. And Stingray, they use, they can listen in on you as well. Right. Cause it's a fake cell phone tower. Uh, but you know, what came through the, um, uh, the Snowden release was was sort of knowledge of the fact that folks now there's so much big data analysis and the stuff that Palantir and others are able to do is I don't have to know who you are to figure out eventually who you are. I don't have to cross reference anything because I can just see a data point that was at a location I'm interested in. So for example, at an embassy, and then just follow that dot right? Uh, by triangulating the cell phone towers, which they can do very easily. And then see you go to a suburban address and stay there for eight hours as you sleep. Well, okay, now I know where you live. And that's a pretty simple thing for me to figure out who lives at that address, right? I mean, as simple as low tech is going up to the mailbox and getting the mail and see who lives there. But anyway, I think- But now we can do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, the thing that really gets me is this idea that I can drop a, a, a quarter into your bag, into your car, leave it behind when I get out of your car after I've been traveling with you. You don't know it's there. And I can track you just as well as they can. Freaks me out, Sam. Freaks me out. Well, well to be fair, they have also had devices. I mean, I remember when I worked at Best Buy back in college uh, years ago, and they had the same little devices. They were larger and clunkier, but they were made for like tracking children, right? So you have like this little, at the time it was maybe the size of like a small flashlight, maybe. And it had a GPS trip chip in it and would be charged and you just drop it in your kid's backpack was the idea. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I don't really know how you solve the surveillance problem with great power comes great responsibility. Anything that can help our life uh, and make it more convenient can always be abused. So we shall see how it develops. But I don't know. Do you think you're going to pick up some air tags for any of your uh, any of your stuff there, Matt? Yeah, no, probably not. No, uh, my uh, <laughs> my wife is uh, in the circus arts. So when she says she's going to circus training, she probably is. She probably is. I'm not going to worry too much about those acro yoga circus sessions. We're all good. <laughs> oh, yeah. You, you did mention that earlier. That sounded like you were <laughs> oddly, oddly specific. <laughs> there you go. Very, very cool. Well, right. you know, on the subject of, uh, of tech, you know, making our lives more easily, but of course, having two sides to the coin. I noticed some uh, some interesting uh, emergency, emerging trends out of VR. I mean, VR is something that we go back to here and there, but you actually had a story out of the information that I thought was pretty interesting. Um, what, what was yeah. going on? Yeah, so everyone knows what the Taser is, right? And Taser is actually uh, founded by a company called Axons behind the Taser. And uh, they've made a transition uh, into creating VR training technology for police officers, which piqued my interest because back in Australia, um, uh, I used to spend a bunch of time with uh, friends of mine were cops. And they told me the story, which is kind of funny and terrifying at the same time, uh, without any VR in a training scenario uh, with a disarm um, uh, exercise, i.e. I've got a bad guy in front of me holding a gun, pointing at me. 
they would practice this two-handed move where they slap the gun out of your hand, take it off you, right? They disarm you. And then once they've done it, they hand it back to you so they can do it five, 10 times, right? And get really good at it. But they realized this was a problem when there was an instance in real life where that muscle memory kicked in, they slapped the gun out of the person's hand and then gave it back to the criminal. I shit you not, this happened. Wow. Okay. Well, if you could drill the same thing a hundred times, you're probably going to do, you know, for real what you do in practice, right? So I think VR is moving in really interesting directions. And and one of the things that I really like uh, about this new technology from Axon is we've had recent instances where a police officer has made the mistake of pulling their gun when they thought they were pulling their taser. I remember reading about that. Yeah, it was terrible. Tragic results, right? So, so that they're being on the front foot about this, which I like, which giving giving people uh, the opportunity to do repetitive drill and training using virtual reality experience. And what's really important about VR is, as you and I talked about a couple of episodes ago, is with the VR goggles on, you can you can sort of get that sensory experience of a high pressure environment, someone screaming at you, uh, inability to see the whole picture, you know, uh, these sorts of things, someone reaching for their glove box or whatever it happens to be. So you can feel that pressure. And then react and respond and then go back and do the video replay and see see how you did. So uh, I think that's really interesting. It's really, really interesting. I think it's sort of a next level uh, thing. So good on Axon for doing that. And it made me think that the next generation of this could be deployed by companies with their new hire training, right? We talked about it in customer service. Um, there, there are companies out there that are, are now uh, deploying it in, in, in sales situations to, to, to do that. And there's a, the one that popped up for me was a company called, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it actually. I think it's VIAR360. So you can check it out team. It's V-I-A-R 360 um, that allows you to create any sort of simulation in a VR context. Um, and I think, I think it's going to supercharge onboarding and make people far more effective far quickly than we can do it today. You know, this actually was a story from back in 2019, I remember, because it was big news when Walmart started using VR for um, training. Um, Like they would actually have, they used, uh, I believe, an Oculus Rift and they would, uh, during onboarding, and I'm not sure if it's still being used to this day or how widely it was used, but I remember they would use it to basically train uh, new associates and and kind of have these VR uh, human-to-human interactions uh, to for the purposes of accelerating their training, basically, um, and I remember they were saying it increased their test scores. Um, it was they were hoping that it would replace a lot of the more kind of boring, less engaging learning management system modules that everybody in retail always has to do. It's the first step is you spend usually days doing these like little e-learning courses to learn how to talk to customers and, and how to help them. So yeah, I mean, I think people are already interested in this. We'll just see if it, you know what's what's really holding it back. I think is uh, the the technology. It's just still slightly clunky. It's just not quite something people are clamoring to use. I think if they get the form factor even of the VR devices down to you know something as easy as a pair of, of glasses, maybe something a little bit lighter, a little bit you know you don't need a whole room full of like cameras and so on to make it effective. Um, I think that's going to be the missing link. You know. Yeah. I agree. I agree. No, it's fair. Which sort of brings us to uh, a related topic in supercharging humans. Do you want to tell us about getting flipped off at restaurants? So, yeah, I saw this. This is interesting. One of my favorite places I've ever been is Tokyo. And in Tokyo, they're all always well known for, you know, cutesy little robots and 
uh, you know, technology and, and advanced vending machines and automats and my personal favorite, the conveyor belt sushi. And I noticed that in, uh, this is starting to, to show up in America to some degree. Uh, you, know, there's, you know, it's not showing up yet though, Sam, if you're going to pick on Tokyo, I've got to call this out. So the first please. time I went to Tokyo was when I was 15 years old. I was a little karate kid and I went over there for a month to do karate. And the thing to my, to my astonishment, there were beer can vending machines. You oh, could yeah. get, like you literally walk up to it in a, in a bus station or anywhere else. And I'm looking around for the, the police offer that there's some sort of adult supervision. It did not exist. And the good news for me at 15, I was six foot one. Unfortunately, I didn't keep growing. That was it. I sort of peaked out there, but I was six foot one. So, you know, to the untrained Japanese eye who wasn't used to seeing tall, gangly white kids, I looked like maybe, maybe I was of age. Uh, and I have to tell you, I took advantage of those vending machines. It was a, it was a wonderful thing, Sam. But anyway, oh, wow. Did you have any strong zero? Do you remember that strong zero? I do not. I strong do not. zero is this amazing, fruity, alcoholic, ubiquitous beverage in Tokyo is 9% alcohol. Oh my and uh, good Lord, a couple of those out of a vending machine and you are good for the night. But anyway, so now we're starting to see sort of Tokyo style cutesy robots showing up. And the one example that came up was on TechCrunch was from a startup called Miso Robotics with a little cutesy robot that helps people in a restaurant called Flippy. What did you think about this? Yeah, yeah, so that's interesting. So, so Mizo Robotics, actually, they're not as cute as you think. So Flippy, uh, as you may recall, is is the arm that's like literally flips hamburgers, right? In, uh, in, in I think, uh, White Castle is one of the restaurants uh, that they talk about. And when it first came out, there was a bit of furore with the uh, with the staff because I'm like, well, you know, what if this thing bumps into me and chops my arm off or whatever else? Which is fair enough, right? So who knows what the thing's going to do? Uh, but they, they 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 sort of go off to a slow start. But I think they're cranking now. One of the reasons that they're cranking is because uh, here in Las Vegas, uh, I think it's representative of what's happening around the country. It's actually really hard to get people to fill um, the sort of rush of job openings that are happening around. Not not only in restaurants, but in in hospitality. Uh, generally. And I think this is a window of opportunity for people like Miso Robotics to just, uh, to just jump through. And to your point about uh, cutesy robots, um, you know, it, I think it was in Miami, uh, there's one uh, hot pot restaurant called You and Me, who are, I think, at the forefront of a trend we're going to see here for sure, where the greeter who takes you to your table is a little robot. You, you, you see them zooming around, you, you meet them at the, at the front desk, and then you just follow them along, and, and then you go. Um, and, and, you know, folks who, who have been traveling in the past, going through San Francisco, for example, New York, or the larger airports, will have seen Cafe X, where there's basically a box that makes coffee for you. There's um, Zoomy Pizza, if you pronounce that correctly. Do you, have you ever tried one of those, Sam? I definitely, I've tried Cafe X and it was kind of a novel interesting experience. I first saw it for the first time in the Westfield Mall in San Francisco and I've seen other ones since. In fact, I think they even stood one up around Union Square in San Francisco. That's like a little standalone. But what's interesting is most of these still have a human like attending, mm -hmm. I guess, just to clean up and make sure people don't abuse the robot. I don't know. But um, I found it an interesting novel experience. I've also used Pizza before, which is kind of like a more modern automat. Uh, yeah. And then I've seen Zoom pizza. I never used it myself, but I mean, I don't mind for something quick uh, having a, a robot make the meal, but 
It's kind of like getting your hair cut by a robot in my experience. Um, well, not that I've actually how had that, that, how happen. Did that happen. Was that, was that a good experience or? A... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it turned out it was not, <laughs> turned out it was not a hair cutting robot. I don't know what I was thinking. No, yeah. but for real, I, you know, some things you are just better with humans. I think food is one of those. I, I, I don't mind maybe for something quick, like a McDonald's or an espresso, having a robot arm make it. But if I'm going to pay extra money for a restaurant experience, I do want other people to interact with. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. See, my wife, she loves restaurants, everything about a restaurant, except for the people. So if you could just get rid of them, she'd be, she'd be happy. Uh, yeah. I actually uh, tried Eatser in New York some years ago. They've since shut down actually and transitioned to being a tech company. But for those that never tried Eatser, it was a really interesting concept. If you've, you know, try to get lunch uh, at in Manhattan anytime. You know what the queues are like, the craziness, the speed. Eats it was cool because you'd walk up to uh, a computer terminal, basically a little touchscreen thing, and uh, pick out a quinoa bowl or something. They're all very healthy at Eats, uh, and then click what you want, swipe your credit card, and then you'd be looking at a a grid of glass uh, boxes basically. And when yours was ready, it would uh, or magically write your name with LED, I guess it was, on the box, and you go up press a button and uh, take your quinoa bow and off you go. It's it pretty nifty. Um, but I wonder, are we going to get to the point where fully automated restaurant experiences uh, become commonplace? You know what? I, I think, Sam, the way you think about it is the way most people would think about it. I think it would be fine. For the drive through coffee, why not? You know, fast food pickup, why not? I think Flippy, Flippy at <laughs> White Castle probably has a, a long runway ahead of them. I think that there's, there's definitely a, a future in it. For sure. Yeah. But to your point, the human interaction, you know, when you said that, it made me think about um, back in my 20s, right? Back in my 20s, I was trying to find the love of my life. Uh, I went through a phase where I would uh, uh, try to date efficiently. Uh, and what that meant was meet as many folks as I could. Uh, and every Thursday was my date night. And I would pick one restaurant. I remember this German restaurant. And I went the same place every Thursday. Why? Because I knew that I'd have a good experience and that the person that I was having join me would you know, would also have a good experience. And then what I found was is sort of this uh, unconscious gamification of the experience, because once they got to know me, they would always make sure that there were flowers on my table, that you got the corner table, they knew your name, you know, uh, which actually could have been a bit awkward sometimes if I think about it now. Like, oh, good to see you again, Mr. Cameron. It's like, oh, shit. Oh. <laughs> who was it this week? <laughs> yeah, whoops. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's some pretty well-publicized things around what Starbucks do, do, does around, you know, gamification, not just the card, but you feel like you're leveling up when you walk in and they say, oh, hello, Sam. It's like, ah. Oh. You know, I'm like a level 10 player now. And next week I'm a level 12 player because not only do they know my name, they know what I drink and so forth and so on. I think that's where you can't uh, replace humans with robots because you get that connection, that community, that sense of leveling up. Yeah, it's true. And you know, my very first job was a sandwich artist at Subway. This was back in high school. And I do wonder, you know, what what would I have done if, if the Subway nearby was robotic? What other kind of job would I have done? So I do wonder about that impact too. And geez, that's a whole other topic we don't necessarily have to get into. But as people push for higher wages and as robots become cheaper and more plentiful, are we exiting in the era where high schoolers have any jobs available to take at all? I mean, are they all going to be making apps? <laughs> like, I, I yeah. hope that they're able to, uh, you know, find some niche, uh, maybe if it's not in restaurants, but some niche in the future. Maybe it's servicing the, the robots. Maybe we'll have a bunch of uh, high school kids out there in McDonald's uh, with wrenches and and uh, trying to program the, the robots when they go wrong. I have no idea. 
but I, I do feel for that because I mean, that was my entry to the working world. I had, a, I had some great magical memories working in food service. I mean, folks can't see your face, but I can. I just love the fact that you called yourself a sandwich artist with a straight face. Uh, that's you, quite the artist, I'm sure, Sam. <laughs> that's, oh, some what? Great, that's some great branding there and good on Subway for bringing that through. That's magical, magical. <laughs> it's true. I don't know if they still call them sandwich artists. I had a good time and I still have my sandwich artist name tag. I still do. Well, you know, on the subject of transferring from humans to robots, there is a sort of intermediary stage that we might see gain traction. Something that's in the news lately is a new neural implant that is uh, slated to help people, especially folks who are not able to to type, maybe they're paralyzed, for example, uh, help people type. And so this is the first step into a brave new era of neural implants um, and you know, one, one wonders if that's going to have some transformative effects for everyone, not just folks who are paralyzed, but even, even you and I, obviously Elon Musk, one of his companies that he promotes often is Neuralink, uh, probably many others, uh, that we don't know about that are in the works as well. Uh, but there was something interesting about this one. Talk us through the tech, because I thought when we discussed it earlier, it was really fascinating. It's not just, you know, when, you, when we say helping people type, but yeah, explain to folks what this new breakthrough is, because it really is quite amazing. Sure. So this was actually coming out of a study in Nature, you know, the the top most renowned scientific journal everybody wants to get in. And so the uh, the study came out of Stanford University. So previously they had done different kinds of neural implants to to try to solve the same problem, which is to help people interface with computers with just their their minds with no ability to move their limbs to type or anything like that. And the first time around. Uh, they were doing it where they have implants in a brain and someone's looking at a screen and basically willing the, uh, the cursor on the screen to move around. And then they would select uh, letters, letter by letter that way. Well, the new breakthrough, uh, which is what this paper is about, is having, in this case, it was a 65-year-old um, paralyzed man, I believe it was, um, and had this participant uh, imagine writing the letters instead uh, so they can uh, just sit and kind of think about the letter A, sort of writing it in a stroke. And apparently that was um, a significant improvement. So this person was able to type into a computer with the power of their mind with this implant, and they achieved a typing speed that they claimed was approximately uh, 90 characters a minute, which is close to what uh, a typical 65-year-old would be able to do on a smartphone, according to the article. That is amazing. Do you know what I'm excited about there? Is that uh, if I if I imagine my handwriting, it is beautiful. It's cursive. It's gorgeous. It's consistent. If you look at the chicken scratching that I call handwriting today, you can you can see why I would like this tech now as an able-bodied person. But um, that is cool, and that, that opens up so much possibility um, for uh, um, including folks back in the workforce and uh, being able to do a whole bunch of stuff that, that that you know there's a barrier to right now. So that's cool. Yeah, it's interesting too. And I wonder how, I mean, some people might be better at visualizing like you than they are at typing. Um, personally, I feel like I'm the opposite. I have a very poor visual memory. <laughs> like I did like tests back in school and stuff in, in grade school to get placed into different classes. And part of it was a test that tested my like visual aptitude. Mm-hmm. It was always terrible. Like my verbal's good. I can think about words well. I can, you know, write well. But then thinking about like, if I'm trying to picture right now uh, what I ate for breakfast, very limited detail, frankly, very limited detail visually. 
Uh, I could write a poem about it, but I can't <laughs> actually think about exactly what it is so I could paint it or something like that. I do wonder if um, these devices could help. I also wonder about things like brain training. You know, it was really big back, uh, I don't know, was it 10 years ago now, maybe longer, when everybody was really into this idea of brain training. The Nintendo had a, a popular... Yep game people would use to, to calculate your brain age and everyone was doing these sudoku puzzles you know you couldn't go on any train or bus without seeing half a dozen people doing a sudoku to try to make themselves smarter i think that's fallen out of fashion but if you have an actual implant in your brain that is giving you impact or, or giving you feedback rather on how well or poorly you are doing at controlling the firing of your neurons mm -hmm. uh, you know i gotta wonder maybe there's uh, gonna be a resurgence of brain training or things like that. That'd be interesting. Oh yeah, this is back to me and being tracked. I'm again terrified. My my issue with visual uh, visual memory and uh, visual representation is in my mind I visualize myself far better than I actually am in real life. So I'm not sure how far I'm going to go with that. So. <laughs> yeah, well, you're not the only one. Some people lately have been saying the same thing of our good pal, our friend, well, future friend. I don't think he knows you or I exist yet. Elon Musk. He's no. He's been talking about Bitcoin lately. Obviously. By Mr. Founder of Neuralink, Tesla, uh, SpaceX, any others? Actually, I don't know yeah. if he's found if he founded SpaceX, but whatever. He's he's the head head guy at a lot of these places. And today, or actually yesterday, he he, he announced um, shortly after announcing that Tesla was going to start accepting Bitcoin. He announced that they would stop, and their reasoning was that, oh well, you know, when you look closer at it, Bitcoin is taking too much energy and that energy is coming from unclean sources. So we're going to basically have this kind of moratorium, this self-imposed moratorium on accepting Bitcoin until Bitcoin energy, you know, sources become better was, was basically the explanation. And upon saying that, uh, Bitcoin dropped a pretty mighty amount, about 13% so far. What do you make of this? Is, is Elon too I influential? Yeah, so this is fascinating. I mean, the, the guy has the ability to move the market in the same way as a few words from the Fed Reserve or the President of the United States, right? And, you know, sh should he be able to do that? I mean, I why not, right? Uh, the, you know, I, I'm, I, I don't think there's any... Um, issue. We, we can't say someone should, someone shouldn't. My concern is, is it a good thing that any individual can utter a few words or pop a tweet out and move a market like this, which has real world impact uh, on, on a lot of people? Um, I'm fascinated about this thing about Bitcoin because it, you know, most folks listening will have heard uh, about you know the Dogecoin stuff, and then the stuff he did on SNL the other week, uh, and whatever else, and the and the movement he he um, uh, had with that that currency or that um, you know, digital artifact. Um, Another so, negative one, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, initially very, very positive, and then after SNL, yeah, big negative one when you said it was a, a hustle. Uh, for now, I'm like, well, what's he up to? Like, <laughs> if he's if he if he crushes Bitcoin because of the energy consumption, is he going to come out? Uh, next week and say, well, actually, Dogecoin is extremely energy efficient. So therefore, that's the way to go. I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, it's fascinating. But what I what I think the point that, that I'm interested to think about, and I'd like to you know, be fascinated in, in listeners' perspective on, is, you know, in a world where one human can have literally billions move in a day on a tweet, like, how do you prepare or protect yourself against that? Because it's basically like a black swan event, you know, one of these things that can't be predicted and create some massive and unexpected swing. And if that's true, if these things become more common, which I think they are, then you're kind of trying to um, 
get yourself to that point of, of creating some sort of uh, resilience in your life, right? So how can I stop myself getting crushed if a black swan event happens, this concept of anti-fragility? And the way I think about it, I was like, you know, I, I used to um, try and fly planes, which I was terrible at. Uh, and what they say is the way we, we control if, is that we have Swiss cheese, right? You're flying along, there's a safety check and you can slip through one of them, which is a Swiss cheese hole. But then we've got four more Swiss cheeses with holes in different places. So hopefully at some point you catch. And I think in life, in business, uh, personal and professional, we need to think about that, right? So, you know, if you've got 15 or 20% of your uh, net worth tied up in some sort of virtual currency, and then someone does a tweet that drops it by 15% in a day, how do you create anti-fragility, right? Yeah. It's something I think too, that I'm becoming more aware of as I've aged is the where, where real value is in your life, right? Like is real value, is the real value, the real thing that gives your life meaning and purpose uh, that you're going to lay on your deathbed one day and, and look back and, and smile at the life you've led. How much of that's really going to come from your crypto investments? Is that really going to be the thing that makes or breaks your view of, of how you spent your life? I don't think so. I don't think it should. I think a lar- large part of, co- of anti-fragility in your own life needs to come from grounding yourself in things that are more lasting, permanent, meaningful to you. For most people, that's family, that's close connections with their friends, that is you know, creating a life full of, of rich experiences that educate you, delight you, inspire you. Those are the things that I think you will always have, no matter what the economy does, because we don't know what's going to happen, right? There could be a war tomorrow, you know, with what's going on in the Middle East, with what's going on with China, the US dollar itself could crumble into nothing, crypto could crumble into all of these things could happen. And if they happen, you need to have some kind of grounding that is not going to, to ruin your life. I mean, it's a choice, I think, to set yourself up to where the crashing of the economy or anything else um, sort of external like that. Is, uh, is ruinous for you on a deep level. You could be ruined financially, but still end up a happy, uh, you know, fulfilled individual with a lot to live for. And I don't I've think enough people pay attention to that. I've done you it have? twice. I've done it twice. And my, and my first business was called Convenient Cuisine, which was basically Uber Eats before the internet. And we would deliver food. And at 25 years of age, I ended up in $80,000 in debt because I funded it myself. Because back then, there was, you know, there wasn't a venture capital thing in the country I was living in. And uh, I did it another time in, in my early 30s. And, uh, and to your point, Sam, it really is a matter of perspective. It's like that, you know, that put me back to, you know, less than zero financially at that time. Um, and, but but, but uh, I had a connection to purpose and meaning that was beyond that. You know, if you connect your identity to your professional or financial position, then you're really setting yourself up for a shock, I think. So, for wow. sure. Well, well said. Well, I think normally we try to end these a little under 30. Let's go a little over 30 today, Matt, and talk about one new thing. All right, Matt. Today's new thing is called... Vimcal. Have you heard of Vimcal? I have not. Vimcal. Tell me all about it. So I'm very fascinated by productivity tools. Uh, I use a thing called Todoist for to-do lists. Uh, you know, I'm always kind of looking for the next next way to, to use my time more efficiently. Superhuman has been around for a while for email. So it's kind of a Gmail plugin, a front end, if you will, to make it much faster to speed through your, your workflows on in your inbox, right? Quickly read emails, reply, schedule them to respond later, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Vimcal 
is basically superhuman, but for your calendar. So it gives you the ability to jump in and out of your calendar uh, to you know very quickly schedule events, identify availability to share. It's kind of like the next version of what they're trying to achieve is the next version of a Calendly, which I think Calendly has become pretty ubiquitous. Uh, in my professional life, almost everybody I, I know that uh, I schedule time with uses a Calendly link to share availability with people. The purpose of VimCal, by comparison, is to have you quickly complete workflow. So it pushes you towards using, like jumping into your calendar, using uh, things like keyboard shortcuts as opposed to clicks, you know, very quickly trying to find availability. Uh, you can select times when you're available. For example, it composes a little chunk of text for you to very quickly copy and paste or send out to attendees um, that you know doesn't require them going on uh, to your Calendly, for example, to self-schedule, which I always found a little bit off-putting for buyers. You know, like if I'm engaged with you as a sales rep and then I send you a Calendly link and tell you to find time on my calendar, that seems a little backwards. Uh, so I, I do try to follow a best practice of finding specific availability slots to share with people I'm trying to book with. Um, and so this enables you to do that much more quickly and a bunch of other little cool features. But the goal is to you get in and out of your calendar very quickly because that eats up a lot of time for folks these days. I know it does me. Yeah, that's interesting. It's funny you mentioned that because in fact, Jason Lemkin of Sasta once uh, posted about that and said, listen, if you want a meeting with me, don't make me do the work, right? And, and, and you know, I, I get it. it might sound a little bit trite, but, but it's true. I mean, I can't imagine sending a CFO a link and saying, go find a time on my calendar. Are you kidding me? Uh, so this sounds, I mean, that one feature I like. So if I can quickly, you know, do whatever I need to do, drag and drop on my calendar and for it to create the text that I can then copy and paste into an email saying, here are the seven different options available to us. Um, that's cool. That's cool. So VimCal, we need to check it out. V for Victor, I M for Mary, C-A-L, VimCal.com. I'm going to check that out. Well, Matt, this has been a great episode. We ended on a pretty deep note today, I think. Maybe we gave some folks something to think about. Yeah, well, let's try and dig ourselves back out of it. But uh, <laughs> getting, all, getting all introspective and spiritual on a Sam, it's a, it's a good way to, to end the, the podcast. That's right. Well, that's a wrap, everybody. Thanks for listening. Remember, uh, you know, go ahead and, and I don't know, tell people about this podcast if you liked it. <laughs> we would really appreciate it. Yeah, cool. And my thought for the week is they who laugh last think slowest. Bye, everyone. <laughs>